Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you'll hear me, Jenny Scholick, in conversation with ballet masters and former principal dancers Tina LeBlanc and Betsy Erickson about Mark Morris's Sandpaper Ballet. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, February 12, 2020, before a performance of Program 2, Classical Revision. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's Points of View Lecture for Program 2, Classical Revision. I'm Jenny Scholick. I'm the Associate Director of Audience Development here at San Francisco Ballet, and I'm really pleased to be here tonight with two of our ballet masters, Betsy Erickson and Tina LeBlanc. Uh, Tonight, we're here to talk about Mark Morris, who is possibly the world's most famous living choreographer, um, and who works largely in New York City with his own company, the Mark Morris Dance Group, but also um, does make ballets for ballet companies. He's made 22, eight of which have been made for this company. So we have a long history, and the majority of his balletic work has been here. We're going to focus tonight specifically on the work that's on tonight's program, Sandpaper Ballet, made here in San Francisco in um, 1998 and premiered in 1999. Uh, It was the third ballet that uh, Mark made for San Francisco Ballet following Maelstrom and Pacific and was the first for which he used the full orchestra. Um, The piece is to... 11 pieces of music by Leroy Anderson. It's uh, 10 sections plus an overture, so we'll talk a bit about that. Um, And it does have extremely distinctive costumes, which you have a little hint of up here, designed by Isaac Mizrahi, with whom um, Mark has had a long-standing professional relationship spanning over 30 years. Uh, the ballet was staged this time around by Tina Holland, who um, worked as Mark's assistant in 1999 and was one of his company dancers. And the two ballet masters working on the piece are Tina and Betsy, who I have here. So I am thrilled to have them to speak um, about their longstanding relationships with Mark and his work, as well as this company and Sandpaper Ballet specifically. So please join me in giving them a warm welcome. So um, I want to start kind of at a beginning. Um, I wonder if you could both talk about when you first saw a Mark Morris ballet and what your first, or a Mark Morris piece if it wasn't a ballet, and what your impression was um, of that. I'll go ahead. Um, Well, actually, the first piece I saw by Mark Morris was the piece that he did for us, the first one which was Maelstrom, and um, he was at that point very strict about, he didn't want um, a lot of ballet cliches, he wanted really strict form, and so he constructed it in a very uh, sort of clean and straightforward way. Uh, We weren't allowed to use any wrists, which is contrary to Sandpaper Ballet, which is full of uh, green gloves and flapping wrists. So it was, it was actually kind of an introduction to, for me to Mark's musicality and the way that he works, which is uh, absolutely incredibly genius, actually. It's like unfolding a puzzle as it goes and finding 
how all the pieces relate to each other. So it was quite a brilliant discovery to be in the studio with him and watch him working with a musical score, actually visualizing the dance while looking at the score, which he followed very carefully and had different kinds of notations in it so he knew who was doing what when. So it was it was quite an experience and quite a different way of working and enjoyable, wonderful. My, my experience with Mark goes back a little bit further. I didn't get to work with him, but he did set choreograph a piece on the Joffrey Ballet when I was there. I didn't get to be in it because I was in another ballet that was contradicting time-wise with rehearsals. But I do remember he was larger than life. <laughs> he um, would come into the studio every day with a huge Foster's beer <laughs> and a clove cigarettes. That's when you could smoke in the studio. <laughs> and, um, and he would conduct his rehearsals. He was just so vibrant, so unlike any ballet person I ever knew. But I didn't get to work with him until Maelstrom, which Betsy was just describing. And uh, at the time, because he knew me from Joffrey, and I was just starting out getting a lot of notice, and he was as well as a choreographer, he equated the two of us as the same age, which a starting dancer is usually pretty young, <laughs> and starting choreographer, not so much. <laughs> so he would always tease me about, you know, aren't we the same age? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> but he did amaze me with Maelstrom, with his musicality, and I, um, I still look back at my, all the times that I worked with him so fondly because he was just, I felt he was so brilliant, and yet he kept the atmosphere quite light with his wit and his vocabulary, he was always saying these big words, and I would think to myself, I have to go look that up <laughs> so I know what he means. But really wonderful working with him. Um, you both, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit from where I was going to go next, because you both mentioned his musicality and him working with a score. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I've always heard that Mark almost always works with a score in hand. Has that been your experience? Does he demonstrate when he's choreographing? What is that kind of like in the studio for any of his ballets? He works with a musical score. It's kind of, um, I think it helps him sort out the overall picture of what he's trying to achieve. And um, he usually, he'll have some uh, particular phrases of music that will have a certain step associated with it. And that if that music is repeated, he'll usually repeat that phrase of dancing or those steps. Um, but then he throws a little wrench into it, and sometimes he, he'll not necessarily repeat it two times the same way which is uh, tough on the dancers because they have to remember what the sequence is and which came first and which came second. Um, but the score, I think it's, it just helps him organize his thinking and it also helps him see an overall picture. Um, it, it's absolutely brilliant. And every time I come back to one of his ballets, it's like un opening up this giant puzzle and seeing all the parts and how they fit together and uh, finding the, mus the specific musicality uh, that he's going for and 
his works are always full of wonderful rhythms, not always the expected rhythm uh, that we might have as ballet dancers, but his own rhythms. And it's wonderful coming back to Sandpaper and discovering those musical motifs and rhythms again. When you're working as a ballet master on one of his ballets, do you use the score as well? Like, do you, in terms of your notation, do you look at a score or do you have it all written out in a different way? I have it written out in the kind of musical phrase um, format of my own device that, that works for me. I don't know if anyone else could figure it out, but uh, it works for me. And I do it, I always notate the ballets, whether Mark or any other ballet. Um, by the musical phrase. So I wonder, I wonder if we can, I'm put it, popping up a photo here um, of that 1999 cast and wondering if we can sort of just cast our minds back to that moment and the beginning of this ballet and what you remember of being in the studio in 1999 with sandpaper hearing the music for the first time, kind of what those early impressions were of this particular work, either of you. Well, it was the first time, um, as Jenny mentioned, that we had a full orchestra. The other works, uh, Maelstrom and Pacific, are trios. So this was the first time that we had a full orchestra, and Mark always works with a pianist, so we would get a piano reduction uh, score to accompany the dancers, but um, then now and then he'll play, usually he'll have a CD or something and we can play and hear the full, what he would call the full band, um, and hear the orchestration, which was so really wonderful in Sandpaper Ballet with, especially in the beginning with the typewriter and an actual typewriter playing and uh, wood blocks and all those kinds of things. So it was it was just a lot of fun to discover um, how he was playing with the music and what the music actually sounded like. I have one very very distinct memory. <laughs> the cast is twenty five dancers, and so he had fifty people in the room, and he had his score in front of him, and he had us in the grid pattern, which opens up the ballet, and. He was taking a long time. He was thinking, and so the dancers started getting a little antsy and maybe talking a little bit. And Mark, it is a light atmosphere, but he wants you, he wants you to have fun, but he wants you to work, so not goofing off. And it started to get a little too loud, and all of a sudden he said, you know, if you think about the, the grid being set up in A, B, C, D one way and one, two, three, four, five the other, he said, B, two. And Joanna Berman, if you remember her, also quite witty, she looks up and she goes, oh, that's me, that's me. And he goes, shut up. <laughs> and at that point, everybody in the room was like, oh, if he's going to yell at Joanna, we better shut up. <laughs> but he got his point across and nobody took it personally. It was just his way of saying, you know, that he can yell at anybody. <laughs> You uh, you mentioned the grid that opens the ballet, and it's this five by five grid for those who haven't seen it that repeats several times throughout the course of the work. Not quite with every 
piece of music, but frequently. And my understanding is there's some real challenges about that grid. And I wonder if you could share what some of those challenges that the audience may not see from the front might be as a dancer. Finding your place in the grid probably <laughs> would be the biggest challenge. I actually make what I call cheat sheets uh, that are posted backstage to help the dancers remember because almost between almost each section, they have to come back to the grid and it helps them remember where they are in the, in the place because it's like a puzzle. And, um, Meaning that every time you come back to a different place. Yeah, you don't, you don't have one this, place. <laughs> you come back to a different place, I think, every single time. Uh, and it's a challenge to remember. So, yeah, and there's oftentimes in rehearsal anyway, a lot of scrambling around or two people standing in one spot and they're looking at each other like, is this mine or yours? Anyway, we have a lot of fun with the grid, but um, it is quite spectacular because it opens and it closes the ballet. So we now have a photo of Tina up here. I believe this is from 2009, which is the last time uh, we did this ballet. And now you're on the other side of the room working as a ballet master on it. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about that transition and how that's been for you this year. Well, as a dancer, from a very young age, you're very self-involved. You're very introspective, constantly critical or being criticized. It's all, it's all about you. <laughs> um, and it has to be. I mean, in order to improve and push, push yourself, you it, have to be very much in your body, always aware of yourself. Not so much about other people, unless, of course, you're directly involved. Maybe your partner or some interaction that might happen. Um, certainly not the overview. And if you can have that as a dancer, it's awesome, but it's it, often not there. And now that I'm on the other side, it's, uh, it's eye-opening how you really have to work as one. And uh, being on the other side, how many differences you see, how people hear the music differently or interpret a step differently, and how you have to try to guide them to uh, look all the same or be on the same music. So something we, I hinted at very briefly uh, in my little intro, but I'd love to ask you about, Tina, is these costumes. Um, I was listening to uh, a Dance and Stuff podcast, which is quite charming, uh, an interview with Isaac Mizrahi, actually, not from maybe a couple of years ago, and they asked him specifically about these costumes. And he said that the gloves were a real fight, that, that dancers don't love to wear gloves <laughs> when they're dancing. And so I wanted to ask about the gloves, about the costumes in general, what these were like sort of to perform in. They're very distinctive as costumes. Well, be, the gloves, um, besides the fact that all your pulse points are covered, it, they start to get very hot. So I know that um, in between I would open up the little, <laughs> little space between the unitard and the, and the blow on my wrists to try to cool down a little bit. But um, besides that, partnering can be a challenge. Uh, sometimes you have to put rosin, which makes it a little bit stickier because it's lycra on lycra. So if you're lifting a heavy weight, you could easily just slip. So that, that would be a challenge. But the, the horizon line, um, when it, they were first made, I was 
probably the most vertically challenged of all, everybody. And uh, so for me, that horizontal line was at my armpit, maybe just above. And then Ben Pierce, who I had to stand next to at one point, it was below his belly button. So, but it should be the same. It's four feet from the floor for everybody. Yeah, so if everyone were to stand in height order, it would all line up right across. Although you don't ever really stand in a... I guess there are a few moments where kind of everyone is more or less in a straight line in the valley. But you're not like... You don't see it exactly. You kind of have to just know. So this time around with the ballet, you had... A lot. I mean, I'm looking at the cast sheets, and it's a lot of new people, right, in this ballet since we lasted it 11 seasons ago. And can you talk a little bit about setting it this time around and teaching it to a whole new group of dancers? What are the things um, that you had to say to them about kind of understanding this work or that Tina or Mark, when they were here, had to say about kind of understanding what this ballet is about? Uh, it was a little bit more of a challenge this time because very few dancers had uh, performed it. Also, very few dancers had worked with Mark before. So to to get them to understand some of the rhythms and some of the movements, um, it, it took a little bit it took a little bit of doing, a little bit more work because there are not it's not your standard ballet vocabulary although a lot of it is based on ballet vocabulary but it has some very specific things and there's there's a part in the beginning where they have to just point their finger at the side and turn their head and some of them would go about it by going roundabout and it it was hard to just get them to lift their finger and point little things like that um that are, you think, a very simple thing, but because it's not really a dance, a ballet move, it it became a challenge. Uh, the coordination of turning your head, when to lift the finger, when to drop the finger, when to turn your head, when to change the angle, because there are a lot of changes of direction and so forth. Uh, it, it's a challenge. It's a complex ballet, even though it looks fairly straightforward and simple, it's quite complex. And puffy. And, yeah, tiring. What about it makes it tiring? Is it just how much people are on stage throughout? Actually, I, I think in g- the whole thing collectively is not what makes it tiring. It's the individual sections. Like when the girls finish their section, you run off and you puff for a while. The men have it a little bit easier with theirs. But um, fiddle-faddle, a lot of running around, it, yeah, it, it can make you breathe heavily. <laughs> there, there's quite a few sections where there's just a running sequence and the path that Mark would want, usually he would run a spiral um, or reverse it, that kind of thing. And to get 25 people to interpret the same kind of circle with a straight line in the middle of it and then another circle going out of it, that it's actually quite a challenge to get that many people um, interpreting what you're trying to achieve to interpret it the same way. 
Okay, so I didn't warn you that I was going to do this, but I had this thought this afternoon that it would be sort of fun <laughs> to do kind of a little lightning round on each of the sections. So if I give you a section of the ballet, in or I'll go in order, just sort of what are your thoughts, what are impressions, a couple words that you know you think of with each section. Does that sound, yeah, sort of? We'll try it. We'll see how it goes. So uh, first up, we have the overture, which I will, um, I will spoil the joke for the, the group of people who are in here, is uh, to Leroy Anderson's sleigh ride, and is done with curtain down through the whole thing. But as a dancer, as a ballet master, what is happening back here, maybe, during sleigh ride? I couldn't say. I never see it. So, Tina, <laughs> you're going to have to say what goes on behind the curtain. Um, a lot of silliness. A lot of silliness. At least in my day, I haven't I haven't seen these guys, but uh, in my day, yes, you had a lot of antics going on before people would get in their grid. I know I was in the corner watching a lot of it, <laughs> and um, it's easy to be silly to that ballet, to, to that music. All right. So then, once the curtain comes up, we see the grid. The first section is the typewriter song. So, how would you describe it? Um, precise, uh, very sharp attack, just like the sound of the typewriter. And we do have, I think, two typewriters in the pit uh, that play the typewriter. We have, uh, I'll um, show our podcast program one more time. We have a little uh, interview in our To The Point podcast feed this week with uh, David Rosenthal, who's our um, head percussionist, uh, about him and his typewriter. And he does a little demo and talks all about uh, playing the typewriter. So I will tell you to go check that out. But Tina, any thoughts on the typewriter? The same. Very precise, sharp. Uh, the grid is always moving, but very much what you would imagine a typewriter looking like, you know, as we're moving to the music. All right. Next up, we have the trumpeter's lullaby. I think Mark, when he uh, was first making it, he he had this idea of loneliness for the trumpeter that he was looking for a friend, and uh, so I I think it kind of has an emotion to it. Softer, slower a little bit heavier in the, the jumping, and yeah, there's a bit of yearning there. All right, Sarah Band. Uh, bouncy, um, sort of rebounding and swinging would be probably Mark's description of the Sarah Band. It's a beautiful piece of music, and the theme repeats uh, quite a few times Orchestrally, uh, each time is a little bit different, and the same with the dance. Sometimes the thematic material be danced by the women, sometimes the men, sometimes as couples. Uh, it's, a, it's really one of the most interesting sections because it has so many facets to it and so many interpretations of the basic tune. You agree? She said it. All right. Uh, Balladet. Balladet is um, slow and kind of, um, it's like 
maybe laying on a beach in the sun or something like that. It's, it's very languid, very heavy, very relaxed. And that is the pot right? The main sort of central pot of the ballet. Uh, the jazz pizzicato comes up next. He would say, you have, a hand, you have a handgun in your purse. You've got a little purse and there's a handgun in it. It's, it's a little bit mean. So when you watch the girls do their dance, it's supposed to be a little mean. Aggressive probably would be the best description, yeah. And the jazz legato. The pizzicato is for all women and the legato is for all men. And the legato is uh, very... Uh, he always described it as having concrete in your gloves, that your arms are so heavy. And uh, the movements are very soft and um, kind of bouncy. Fiddle-faddle. Mm. I'll say a little crazier, a little bit more wild and uh, thrown about. Fiddle-faddle has a lot of elements to it, and, um, yeah, there's a section where dancers will run straight on a diagonal to the center of the stage and then jump up in the air and land, and he always said, bam, when you land. <laughs> he didn't want to see any preparation. He just wanted to see the jump come out of nowhere. That's fiddle is kind of unpredictable. And fiddle faddles the with the big diagonal crossing as well, right? Which it, yes. I at least always hold my breath a little bit. That's through. very hard to do. We had <laughs> we had to do that in the studio quite a bit. And sometimes we would do one side, one diagonal first, and then the other one, and then we put them together because they have to cross on the center. And uh, it it oftentimes ends in a collision, unfortunately. Not once it gets on stage, but though, no right? one got hurt. <laughs> Not only do they cross, but they're in a two-count cannon to the person in front of them. So they're all doing a different thing as they're crossing. So it gets a little dicey sometimes. Uh, after fiddle-faddle, we have the girl in satin. Mark would always describe that as twisted and, <laughs> twisted and uh, tilted. Yeah. And it's three women... Um, sort of um, just being themselves, just being beautiful. I always think of them as glamour girls. Yeah. They're, all, they're kind of glamorous. <laughs> they're dragging their mink. <laughs> uh, then Song of the Bells. Song of the Bells, it has that feeling of like a bell, like a pendulum um, swinging and there are a lot of movements that are tilting and and swinging back and forth. I guess you'd say it's sort of bell-like. I just think fun. That was always fun for me. And then we end with the syncopated clock. That's such an interesting uh, piece because it it starts on the grid, it ends in the grid, but then the grid dissolves at the end, and it's based about uh, like the gears of a clock uh, going around from one grid mark to the other. Um, and I think, I think it's 
beautifully constructed. It's like a machine, kind of. And then in the middle of it, there's this thematic material that he has one or six or all 25 doing at the same time. And uh, it's, it's really quite beautiful, quite well constructed. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me in my little lightning round there. Um, I want to pick up on a few things that kind of came up as you were, you guys were talking. Um, and one that has always struck me about this ballet is the way that there is this grid, there is this group of 25 and yet people are still individuals within it, right? They're all dressed the same. I mean, with slight variation and there's this grid that they get into, but soloists, apodida, you know, these sort of emerge out of it and then come back in. And I wondered um, if you could talk kind of both from the dancer's side and from the ballet master's side about kind of navigating that. What, what is that like as a dancer to kind of come in and out of that group? And then how do you kind of get everyone to work together and also maintain that sort of individual sense within it? Yeah, there are moments when everyone is doing the same thing. And so if you're a principal, a soloist, or a corps de ballet, um, you're part of this bigger picture. And then some people are featured uh, in different sections. He would, when it was an individual, Mark would call it a giant solo. Uh, and it might just be like eight counts of music, but it was an important moment for that person. And and then that person would become part of the group again. So it was constantly uh, coming in and out of a group effort. And everybody has to work together. So everybody's kind of on the same level in Mark's ballets. Yeah. Yes, very much ensemble. But his his steps are so musical. He's so musical. I wish the cast now had had a little bit more time with him uh, just for the experience, but I think it all works out in the end because he's just so very clear on the music. As a dancer, um, that, you know, I mean, we, we talk often, right, about choreographers being musical, but I feel like we say it more about Mark Morris, right, than many people. And I wonder if you could just sort of explain what that means, right, to someone who maybe hasn't been in a Mark Morris ballet. What does that mean? What do you mean by it? Well, I, I'll give you sort of an example. When we were uh, working on the piece called Joyride, which was for the uh, New Works Festival that happened 10 years ago. Well, now it's like 12, 12 years, years ago. 12 years ago. Um, the piece of music that the composer that Mark chose to work with was John Adams. And um, the music was tremendously complex. It, we had a hard time hearing it. And somehow Mark, once it was choreographed and you could see it visually, the music made sense. And we were all like, this is unbelievable. But now I can hear the music after seeing what he had done choreographically because he had structured, he had taken the music as the structure and he had put the, the dance with it. 
And suddenly it all made sense. And it was one of those sort of miraculous moments when you felt like you could hear the music. You could hear the rhythm. You could hear the, the theme. You could feel what was going on. And it was, it was just really unbelievable. That was probably the biggest challenge that we all had because it was a new piece of music. And uh, we only had a, sort of a synthesized version of it to rehearse to. Um, and it, that was quite a, a challenge. But he somehow found the music, the structure in there and worked with that and made this beautiful dance called Joyride. The only thing I can compare it to working with him and, and his musicality is Balanchine. I find uh, when we bring a, a piece that I've danced of Balanchine's back, the steps come back very easily because it just makes so much sense with the music. And Marx is very much like that. Um, it's also, I don't know if, if you can see in a dancer, sometimes there's somebody that just seems to, like the music is exuding out of them. Uh, it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of that as well. I, I said about this piece uh, at an event over the weekend that it feels like it sums up, you know, Balanchine's see the music and hear the dance, right? That, that with this one, too, I feel like I, see, I hear more complexity in the Leroy Anderson score because I'm watching the dancing, right? Like, I understand something about the music because of the dancing. He gives you a lot more, actually, uh, more to hear, because he's found so much in the music. Leroy Anderson, you might take as because you hear sleigh ride all the time or syncopated clock and people can sing to it. Um, but then he, Mark actually shows you more about the music than you might have heard before. And uh, it's like an in-depth uh, discovery. It's almost like an analysis of the music that happens in movement. It's really stunning. Um, it's now been slightly over 20 years. It's been about 21 years since this ballet premiered. I guess it can drink now. Um, what do you think makes it still feel so fresh? Like, what about, why is this one of those ballets that can come back after 20 years and, and still have something to say? It's so fun to discover it again, um, and it doesn't feel dated at all. I don't know what makes it. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have? Some? I, I just think it's because it's fun. I think that the new dancers think it's fun, and especially if the audience is enjoying it, it makes it even more fun. Um, how can you resist that? And you can leave the opera house humming the tune. It's something that you can take home with you. I've had it stuck in my head for about two weeks now. I'm sure you guys have had it since, like, last summer. You wake up in the morning, and it's still the typewriter in your brains. Um, I think one last question, and then we're going to have to let people uh, trickle back out and then come back in for the performance. But, you know, San Francisco Ballet's relationship with Mark Morris now goes back 30 years, close to... Um, as I said at the beginning, he's made more ballets for us than for any other ballet company. And I wonder um, kind of why you think that is, or what about um, Mark's work kind of fits 
this company so well over that span of time? We've had a really good working relationship with Mark, and I think he feels comfortable here. He loves visiting San Francisco. Uh, he loves the company, and this this time around, he hasn't been uh, with us very often, and so it was kind of discovering a whole new company. Um, he also appreciates the strong sense of uh, the importance of good music accompanying dance and appreciates Martin West and how he's led the orchestra. And I think he trusts Martin very, very much to, um, because he can, he can be very particular about what a ballet company, what they play and, um, and how they play it. And I think he's very satisfied with our orchestra. So all of those things together with the dancers and Mark and I personally have had a really good working relationship as well. So I think he's comfortable here. And he loves the dancers. Even with the turnover, he always loves the dancers. They're easy to work with. They're open, receptive, and uh, he gets what he wants. You know, he, he pulls out of them what he wants to see. And, yeah, I think it's, it's a lot of the people. All right. So on that note, I want to say a big thank you to Betsy and Tina both for joining us today. Thank you to all of you for coming out early and joining us for this Points of View lecture. Um, I hope that you all enjoy the performance tonight, and I hope that I will see you all here next week uh, on Wednesday at 6. We are doing a little lectem uh, with some of our San Francisco Ballet School students about ballet class. So it is one of my favorite uh, points of views of the year. So I hope that I will see many of your faces back here for that next Wednesday and program three. And until then, uh, enjoy and please do return your POV ticket to the usher to your right when you exit. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts and other audience engagement programs, check out sfballet.org or your favorite podcast player.